Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. You're listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dexter Fergie. My guest today is Atusa Araxia Abrahamian. She's a senior editor at The Nation magazine, and she probably has the most interesting beat in the world. Her work covers all of the cracks in the interstate system, from tax havens like Luxembourg to seemingly post-sovereign spaces like Svalbard. Um, And today we'll be talking about her 2015 book, The Cosmopolites, the Coming of the Global Citizen. It's a deep dive into how globalization is transforming the meaning of citizenship and how the passport has become commodified, especially in recent years by both cosmopolitan elites collecting passports or governments trying to offload stateless populations. It's a fascinating and at times harrowing read. Um, and I'm super excited that uh, Atusa is on the show. So thanks for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Dexter. Uh, and so just to begin, this book is very personal for you, like in a, an autobiographical way. Um, and so I would love to hear about your passports and how you began to write the book. Sure. So uh, I am a very com- confused and mixed up person uh, when it comes to citizenship and nationality. Um, I was born in one country, Canada. Uh, I grew up in a second country, Switzerland. My, my parents were, um, well, my mother is uh, a Swiss citizen, but she was born in Iran of Russian and Armenian provenance. My father, similarly, um, mixed up also by way of Iran and Armenia. And so it was just kind of a, a big mess of places and, and origins. Um, but uh, I never really got much of any of them because I was in such a, an international environment in Geneva and I was in an international school. All of that kind of got flattened, but in a nice way into this big multi mm. multicultural brew um, of people and places. And so I always thought it was quite weird when I met someone who deeply, deeply identified with their country of origin or the place that they lived. Um, and this was in the back of my mind for some years, but I never really thought about it too much. Um, I moved to the States for college uh, and only really confronted where I was, quote unquote, from once I was trying to stay in the States after school ended because I had to get a visa. And, you know, I, I had always assumed, oh, I'm Canadian, like we're just just like Americans, but a little further north. But actually, when it comes to visas, we're more like Mexicans, but further north. Um, if you get what I'm saying, uh, it was not easy. And and that's when I really started thinking about, well, how absurd it is that we have to jump through all these hoops to just live somewhere where we want to live. And this isn't to say that I'm a particularly you know sad victim of the system. I'm not. This is really not what I'm trying to say. But um, as someone who is so privileged, still struggling, uh, that's what really struck me. And so This was in the back of my mind when I started working as a journalist. And one day, and this is, this is kind of how I, this is a long story, but this is how I ended up writing the book. One day um, 
I entered the green card lottery and I won um, the green card lottery, which is crazy. Uh, but then I lost it <laughs> because I had written that I was a native of Switzerland. Uh, it just seemed like the most honest answer. You have to pick a country. It turns out I, I do not count as a native of Switzerland because I was not born there. Um, anyway, I got, I got kicked out of the green card lottery. I was back to square one with the visa stuff. And um, during this period, I checked my spam folder in my email and I was invited to something called the Global Citizenship and Residence Conference. And I don't know if you check your spam ma mail ever. I just kind of click on it when I'm bored and sometimes someone wants to send me, you know, $10 million and whatever. Um, anyway, I clicked on this email and thinking it was going to be some kind of academic conference or a UN thing. And I go through the link and then I, I am sort of shocked to learn that there is a whole conference for people who want to buy passports. So I was thinking, oh, maybe this is going to answer and all the questions I have about what it means to be from a place, what it means to be a, like a global citizen, you know, does it mean anything at all? And there I am, you know, looking at, at, at a, a picture of, I think it was the president of St. Kitts and Nevis, or prime minister of St. Kitts and Nevis, um, you know, preparing to, to give a speech about why their passport was so good to buy. Um, and so that's, that's kind of what set me off down, down this strange path of um, reporting on buying and selling passports. I, I went to the conference, uh, I wrote about it, and um, that was when, you know, it's funny because it kind of confirmed my hunch, right, that citizenship wasn't this necessarily this super meaningful thing. And from from my perspective, if you can buy it, then it really is not so special and, and sort of mystical and, and and well it can't it can't be as special as people say it is if you can buy it, I guess, is was my sort of first impression. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah, that's so interesting. And uh yeah, I should probably uh check my spam folder. Who knows what um, projects are, uh, you know, just waiting to be done. Uh, um, <laughs> uh, but just to sort of start us off, I was hoping that you could um, share a little bit about the um, historical meaning of citizenship. Um, and the reason why I'd love to hear you talk about that, um, uh, even if briefly, is because you're really looking at this like change over time that's happening in the like the, the latter decades of the 20th century, early decades of the 21st century. Um, and so can you just tell us what, um, uh, what citizenship meant, what national citizenship meant before your story? So the passport is a relatively new technology, um, much like the modern nation state, right? We haven't lived in, in this particular configuration of the world for a very long, for, for a very long time. Um, my understanding of the history, and as a non-historian, um, that's my caveat, is that pa passports were not in, in wide use or circulation until basically the, the 20th century, um, which is around the time that borders started to harden um, and be policed, and countries would also guard their borders more jealously. Um, and so citizenship, I suppose, became, became a requirement for travel. I mean, proof of citizenship uh, became a requirement for travel. And um, as time went on, their visas came into play. Um, citizens from certain parts of the world were not allowed into other parts of the world, whether it was because of diplomatic issues, you know, the Iron Curtain, 
or um, for economic reasons. And um, so, so it just purely in, in a functional sense, we went from humans went from not really having to carry documents around with them all the time and, and prove where they were from to always having to have to show proof of identity at, at national borders, which were being more and more policed. So um, that's why having a citizenship, proving your citizenship, and maybe most importantly, having the right one became quite important by the time um, the 20th century rolled, rolled, rolled around. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I think that sets us up um, really nicely because uh, yeah, like even the the prehistory to your story um, was was a temporary state of affairs. Okay, so just to kind of turn towards the story in your book, um, a lot of it is about this like particular scheme between um, Comoros, um, um, which is um, a set of islands in the Indian Ocean, if I'm not mistaken, and two Gulf states, Kuwait and United Arab Emirates, um, and it's this the scheme to basically um, offload um, or uh, to grant citizenship to um, the stateless populations in um, these Gulf states, um, but not citizenship in those countries, but citizenship in this like other country that has no historical connection to um, these states. Um, and it's, it, it's a really, I mean, it was a surprising story to me because I, I had never heard of it. Um, but um, in the context of like the commodification of the passport, it's uh, it's a really interesting angle um, because I'm thinking more about these wealthy elites jet setting and, you know, picking up passports and so on. Um, and so can you talk about this story? Maybe just um, introduce uh, uh, introduce it, maybe a character or two. Yeah, sure. So, so the background to this scheme, which the, the short version is that the Comoro Islands sold a whole bunch of passports to the United Arab Emirates so that the UAE could document their stateless people. Um, the, the sort of background and context to all of this goes back to what we were talking about before. Passports were foisted onto people. Um, borders were, were put up around people. And these categories didn't necessarily reflect the way people lived, who they were, where they really came from, how they identified, you know, these were, were constructs and technologies that, that popped up and they didn't always make sense. And I think the UAE, the situation in UAE is, is a great example of that. Um, the modern Emirati state, again, is, is a very recent, um, I want to say invention, but, or should I say construction? Uh, it hasn't existed in its current format for a very long time. Um, and when it was established in the 50s, th there were some population surveys um, to see, you know, who lived there and, and who belonged and who would be part of this, this new country. And partly on purpose and probably also partly not on purpose, a bunch of people were left out of these surveys. And that came back to bite them later because they were not considered citizens because they couldn't prove that they were in the territory or in a certain place at a certain time. Um, that's the very, very glossed over, um, but, but basically accurate version of why there are people in the UAE who do not have, um, who are undocumented and who are stateless because the state will not recognize them as citizens and they have nowhere else to go. Um, in around 2005, 2006, the Emiratis um, decided, for some reason, maybe there was pressure from the international community, 
that they wanted to solve this problem of statelessness. Um, now, the Emiratis have not, to my knowledge, even released a, 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 an accurate count of how many people are stateless in their country, but they do acknowledge that there are stateless people um, called Bidun, and they, you know, they wanted to document them um, for all of the reasons that a state would want to document people, right? This is a very useful thing to do, especially if you're uh, sort of on the repressive slash authoritarian side. It's good to account for populations. Um, but of course, giving somebody Emirati citizenship is quite expensive. Uh, if you are Emirati, you have it made, it's a very generous um, state. So to sort of have their cake and eat it too, the Emiratis thought, okay, what's a third solution? And the third solution kind of came out of this existing market for passports. Um, it's almost like you put two and two together. You think, okay, let's say you're a, rule, a, a, a sheikh in, in Emirates or the, the person in charge of this. Well, there's a market for passports. People can buy them. And we have some stateless people and we have lots of money. So instead of giving them, you know, a modicum of rights and representation here, let's just buy them a passport. Um, which I guess is pretty seductive logic if you're a certain type of, of thinker. Um, and fortunately, uh, into this picture, uh, waltzed a businessman named Bashar Kiwan, himself a very global citizen, a French-Syrian media executive who had spent some time in the Comoro Islands and had been trying for, for a few years to come up with a scheme to develop those islands. Uh, and one thing led to that, the other, and he convinced the government of the, of the Comoro Islands um, through some above-board methods and some less above-board methods uh, that they ought to sell the UAE lots and lots and lots of passports and document, and I quote, their Muslim brothers and sisters in the UAE. Um, if this sounds really weird and cynical, that's because there's definitely a really weird and cynical element to it. Uh, but at the same time, it does solve a problem, which is that all of these people in the Emirates and look on my account and on my account based on some, some leaked documents I received, it's not, it's not a small number of people. It's like 30, 40, 50,000 people uh, don't really have the means to officially identify themselves, um, you know, in, as, as citizens of anywhere. And so if you go from having nothing to identify yourself with to having an actual passport, there's something to that. Um, I'm not saying it's democratic or just or wonderful, but there's something to it. And so this scheme took off. Um, this businessman, Bashar Kiwan, uh, was kind of running running the operation, um, even transferring some of the money from the UAE to the Comoros. Officially, this was, they're talking about $200 million. So it's a lot of money for a small country. And um, in this manner, uh, quite a lot of people who were previously stateless were documented. Um, uh, so one person for whom this uh, didn't end particularly well, at, at least not initially, uh, is somebody is a man named Ahmed Abdelhalik. So he was one of the people who was sort of summoned to obtain a Comoro citizenship. I say summoned because people were kind of coerced into getting these passports. Um, it wasn't a, a life or death thing, but it was definitely there was definitely made clear to them, uh, you know, in the newspaper 
by officials calling up people's houses that um, it would really behoove them to become Comoros citizens. And for Abdelhalik, it was a matter of, oh, if you want to get your driver's license renewed or when you get the plates on your car, you should really come and get this passport. Um, he wasn't crazy about the idea. He hadn't really heard of the Comoros besides in a history book once or twice, but he went ahead and he got the passport. Um, Abdelhalik was also an activist. He was part of a group that was advocating for more um, democracy and some human rights issues in the Emirates. And that doesn't always fly so well in the Emirates. So he was put in prison. He was arrested. And when he was in prison, um, he really had to confront the reality of being a Comoro citizen because his jailers um, gave him a choice. They said, well, uh, Ahmed Abdelhalik, you're a foreigner um, on Emirati soil. And so we're going to deport you. And they gave him a choice of a few countries, including, I think, Afghanistan, um, Iraq, I think... Somalia or Sudan um, and Thailand. And it turns out these are places that are fairly easy to get a, a visa with a Comoros passport. And so he's sitting in jail and he's like, okay, I, I guess I'll go to Thailand. Um, his father rushes to get his passport, rushes to get him a visa. They put him on a plane and off he goes to Bangkok, which, uh, you know, he'd never left the country before. If anyone was really identified as being Emirati and being local. It was this man, but he was unfortunately stateless through no fault of his own. So he winds up on the other side of the planet. Um, this story is actually does have a sort of a happy ending because he gets helped out by um, some UN um, resettlement uh, workers there and he gets resettled in Canada, in um, London, Ontario. Big change from the Emirates. Uh, and so he's safe, you know, he's okay. But this is just to illustrate how disconnected um, passports can be from somebody's identity and how people can sort of be globalized against their will or through no, through no initiative of their own. And, um, you know, when I was reporting on all of the rich people buying passports to avoid tax or to, you know, move their assets or to just be in a nicer climate, um, like Malta or Cyprus or St. Kitts and Nevis, I always thought, okay, this is, I'm sure there's some shady stuff that goes on. This isn't the most savory business, um, but what are the stakes really? Because rich people are always going to do stuff like this. Uh, and when I realized that people were being, you know, essentially forced to take a foreign citizenship and potentially being deported as a result of it, deported from their home, um, that really raised the stakes for me uh, with the story. And so, I, I I thought that was a really important part of it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I think Calic's story is really important for your story. Uh, like I, I I hadn't actually considered how um, like for an autocrat that's not willing to extend humanity to its stateless population, um, uh, like the, the the autocrat actually doesn't have that many options um, uh, because if they're stateless, then they can't just be sent off to another country because they don't have any proof of citizenship anywhere. Um, and so, um, yeah, so this, this scheme to assign this like specially carved up citizenship for, um, in a foreign country um, to its uh, uh, stateless population um, actually gave th these governments more um, leverage over those populations. 
That's right. And especially if you consider the fact that the terms of these, what they call economic citizenships of the Comoro Islands were such that um, they didn't actually seem to grant people who had the passport the right to live in the Comoro Islands, um, which is really odd. And then it makes you think, well, is it even citizenship? Is it just a passport? Is it something else? Is it another category of belonging? And uh, I think, I think there's something to be said for that as well. Like, what what does it even mean to be a citizen if this is if this is what mm-hmm. it means, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like maybe just to conclude this part of the story, like what happens to this scheme, and uh, what like what does this look like? Like, how does it play out in uh, in Comoros itself? Yeah, it's a it's definitely worth looking into why on earth the Comoro Islands would get themselves in, into such a bizarre international uh, intrigue, and the reason is money. It's a really poor country. Um, this seemed like a quick way to raise some cash, and if you ask me, they were kind of manipulated into it. You know, the it's this middleman Bashar Kiwan sold the program really really hard. Um, there were definitely some incentives and perks for members of parliament to sign on to it. Uh, they were all, they were, many of the, the parliamentarians were against it until they were taken on an all expenses paid trip to Dubai, uh, at which point they returned home and suddenly felt a little more amenable to the scheme. So there was all kinds of things going on behind the scenes that may have contributed to, to the country passing this legislation. But um, that, that doesn't, that, Sorry, three, two, one. There were all kinds of things going on behind the scenes that may have contributed to the parliament passing this legislation. But at the same time, this scheme, uh, you know, these $200 million coming from the UAE, these were going to be a lifeline for the islands. They were going to build roads. They were going to, you know, fix some of the plumbing. They were going to, you know, create all kinds of public services. Uh, They were going to, you know, Hope in, in theory boost the tourism sector, um, rehabilitate some old hotels, bring in more business, and so it was pitched as an economic development initiative, which unfortunately didn't really pan out. Um, anyone who's done business in the Comoros will say, "Oh, it's very corrupt. It's really hard to do business." There's some truth to that, but there was also a lot of grift and a lot of money sort of magically disappearing into offshore accounts. So. Um, it, it didn't quite work out the way it was supposed to. And I think that many, even many of the people who were for this program in the Comoros uh, were disappointed and now, you know, would, would vote very differently if they had, if they could go back in time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I'd, I'd like to pivot towards that other market for passports. Um, uh, the, the, the market that consists of these, you know, wealthy buyers um, and I would just to kind of to, to start off, I would like to know why someone would want more passports. I mean, it's it might sound obvious, but I'd like to kind of um, know more about the motivations for, you know, collecting passports. Mm-hmm. The motivations for collecting passports um, tend to tend to be one of three or four um, elements. One is that you're a rich person from a place with a bad passport. And that's not something you can just shake off by having a lot of money. Like it's, it's, it sucks. Um, 
if you're a rich person from, let's say, China, um, and you need to get visas whenever you want to go to the US or whenever you want to go to Europe or whenever you want to go on vacation someplace, um, you don't want to stand in line at the embassy if you're like Mr. You know, Moneybags, right? It's That's something that poor people do or just normal people do. Um, and and that, that sort of mix of entitlement and ego and convenience um, is really powerful. And I think that having that extra passport where you can just hop on a plane and get the hell out of here, that's a very, very strong motivation. Yeah, I mean, j- um, j- just and, to respond yeah. quickly, uh, like reading your book, it was interesting to see how like someone's class position can actually be inhibited by their national identity. Um, like there, there are these obstacles that are, um, you know, keeping these elites from actually manifesting their true class position as they see it. Um, <laughs> That's so true. Yeah. That's a good way to put it. Um, and, you know, of course you can pay someone to wait in line at the embassy for you or hire a service, but it's still, it just doesn't, it's still just that thing, you know, that you have to think about that you don't want to think about. And if you can throw money at the problem, why wouldn't you? So I find that understandable and I'm even a little, you know, I, I think people should be able to go wherever the hell they, they want, whenever they want. And so I'm, I'm a sympathetic, right? Maybe not to the ultra high net worth aspect, but certainly to the, the, the part of it that seeks, you know, mobility and, and this, you know, freedom, I guess, to travel. Um, having another citizenship, depending on what your original um, citizenship is, can help you avoid some tax uh, taxes. If you're American, actually, um, something that some wealthy Americans have done is find another, get another passport and renounce the U.S. one because the U.S. taxes its citizens regardless of where they live. Um, and whether or not they're actually paying more is depends on their situation. But you've got to file a tax return. You're on the hook. You know, you have to deal with the IRS, even if you've been living in Malta for 45 years. So that's another reason, right? Tax. And I'm not, I'm not a tax attorney, but there, there are lots of ways that you can, you know, use another passport to your advantage for, for tax purposes. Um, actually, now that we're seeing some of these global minimum tax um, proposals getting kicked around, uh, I'm very curious to see if there's going to be a country that opts out of these agreements and whether that will become a passport of convenience for back, banking um, for a certain type of person. And then, you know, there's also a deep sort of paranoia or persecution complex um, that can take hold if you're a certain kind of rich person. And this is anecdotal. Um, I'm just saying what I've observed. But if you're, you know, if you tend to have right wing ideas and you're worried about things like inflation and the government getting involved in your business and, you know, you, you want to be able to. A, jump, like leave your home very quickly if you need to, right? Because you're scared the government's going to come after you. You also want to be able to move your money really quickly. So that's kind of a combination of, of the two factors I just, um, I just discussed. And then I guess there's a fourth one, which is sometimes people just really want to live somewhere else. Um, and this isn't always the, they don't always take the economic citizenship route, buying a St. Kitts passport. But, you know, I have, I have friends who have tried to get citizenships through their great grandparents, um, because they don't want to live in the US anymore, they want to live in Europe. And that's kind of the easiest way to do it. And it does end up costing them money. 
but that's not strictly citizenship by investment. So, um, yeah, I think there are good reasons and, and less, less honest reasons to acquire more, more passports. And I think it would be good if everyone had, had, had an equal shot at, at having more than one rather than this being really reserved for the ultra rich. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, um, maybe this is a, a good moment to bring in, uh, Christian Kalin, um, uh, the chairman of Henley and partners. Um, and basically just like the, this industry that kind of swoops in to provide, um, you know, consulting for these ultra rich passport, um, uh, purchasers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Earlier on, I, I mentioned that I went to this conference, this sort of junket for, for people who want to buy passports and the people that are trying to sell them. Um, it turns out, I, I mean, I learned very quickly that there was a whole industry around uh, buying and selling passports. This is maybe predictable, you know, with capitalism, I guess. But um, there, there are these firms that will do two things at once. They will, they will advise countries, usually poor, um, small sparsely or, or, or minimally populated countries, um, many of which happen to be former colonies. Make of that what you will. Um, so these consultants will advise the governments of these countries uh, on what they can do, um, how they can monetize their citizenship, or sometimes residence as well. So a permanent resident card, for example. And much like this Comoro scheme, it, it does get pitched or kind of framed um, as a means to economically develop uh, the country to um, raise real estate prices for, you know, beach condos to um, boost the tourism um, sector and other, other sort of classic economic development um, initiatives. Um, And these consultants will talk to the countries, but then they will also cultivate private clients to buy the who who will be the potential buyers of the citizenship, and Christian Kalin is he's been he's been described as the passport king, um, and I think that's a pretty accurate that's a pretty accurate title if we're gonna give people titles. Um, Kalin is a Swiss by birth, has a par- well the last I checked has just shy of a dozen passports. I think it was around ten, and um, has really made a. a, a lucrative and and prominent career uh of being a sort of a passport broker um and he he got his start in the caribbean i think he started off in dominica and saint kitts realized that you know there were these little loopholes in their laws that allowed for the sale of citizenship and turned these into really really multi-million dollar um enterprises uh, on the backs of passport sales, St. Kitts was able to sell lots of condos because they developed, with, with Kaylin's help, um, a program wherein you buy an apartment and they throw in a passport for free. Uh, there, there are schemes where if you donate to a certain fund, you can get a passport at, at a reduced price. After um, some pretty bad hurricanes hit the region, Countries lowered their prices because they were trying to raise money for reconstruction efforts. So it really, it has really become like a a tool of these countries to raise money at at various points. And um, of course, there are consultants on the sidelines uh, skimming off of the edges as well. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and I mean, but Kalen also just seems like such a um, an interesting figure. I mean, he's he, he did he, he did a, uh, a dissertation on um, uh, tax havens, I think. Um, uh, like, what what was he like on a personal level? Yeah, Kalen, I think fancies himself a bit of an intellectual, and he is. He certainly thinks deeply about the line of work he's in. Um, and you know, when you when you get into these circles. There's always a little bit of like revisionist history where they'll they'll find like an example of someone in ancient Rome who bought a passport and say, oh, look, like this has always existed as a way of sort of legitimizing the whole thing. I, I you know, I'm not a historian of ancient Rome. I don't know if, if these things happened or not, but there's definitely an effort to um, sort of, I don't want to say whitewash because while they're is a lot of shady activity that happens in the sale of passports. I, I don't think it is necessarily shady, um, but to I guess I guess sugarcoat, legitimize, um, professionalize this world, take it from the domain of Bond villains uh, to something that a respectable you know CEO would be involved in. Yeah, and um, and so another sort of element to all of this is. Um, and this this comes out in one of the conferences that you attended. Um, I, it might have been the Global Citizenship Conference, but there's also um, there's a lot of ideology going on about you know how you know like 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 being a global citizen, you know, i.e. like having passports in a, a number of former colonies, perhaps other places. It's it's cosmopolitan. It's um, it's like doing good. There, there's um, a rendition of We Are the World um, at one of these things. Uh, and I, and I find that really interesting because um, like there is this very utopian or optimistic project potentially in all of this and kind of like breaking apart the passport as this um, uh, you know exclusive feature of the interstate system. Um, but it's like but it's limited to this very select group of people. Yeah, the term global citizenship comes up a lot in this world. And um, my first instinct was that it's a very cynical use of the term. Uh, if we are to think of the term as something basically, you know, a little crunchy and nice and cosmopolitan. Um, and the, the term global citizenship has definitely been kind of co-opted and turned into a, a marketing pitch um, to make rich people feel special and good about buying their passports rather than, I guess, feeling cynical about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, like, I think the way that you kind of bring in this uh, like optimism is uh, through um, like earlier um, manifestations of global citizenship. Um, So you talk about uh, Gary Davis, is it Mm -hmm. Gary or Jerry? Gary. Gary. Okay. Um, Yeah. So Gary Davis um, and this, this, this guy is so interesting. <laughs> and like, I, I, I was so excited to see that you actually got a chance to interview him. Um, do you want to uh, um, share with our listeners who he was and um, what he uh, wanted? Gary Davis was an American man, um, came from an upper middle class family. His father was a, a band leader and he, was, he fought in World War II. Um, and this really, really marked him. He lost his brother. And he wrote a number of books about his experience um, in in the war and after the war. And there's a very vivid section in one of his books where he's 
flying a pl- uh, a, a plane, uh, but I guess he's going to bomb, throw bombs down onto Germany. And um, he has just this, this feeling of like, what am I doing here? Why am I doing this? Um, we're all the same. You know, it sounds really schmaltzy, but I think it was quite heartfelt uh, as evidenced by what he did after the war, which was to take off his uniform, fly to Paris, walk to the U.S. Embassy and renounce his citizenship because the, the effect of fighting in the war was so profound on him uh, and, and it, it made him despise nationalism so deeply that he decided that he wanted nothing to do with it and that he couldn't associate himself with, with the nation state any longer um, and also live you know, in a way that lived up to his, his personal ethics and, and morals. So Gary Davis uh, called himself world citizen number one. Um, no, world citizen, not global citizen. There's maybe some subtlety there that, that some of the listeners can uh, identify. Um, and he lived the rest of his life as somebody who is stateless by choice. And Gary Davis, I mean, he was a legend. He printed his own passport, walked around with it, and, and played these tricks to get governments to stamp it. Um, so he would wait until he was in France when he renounced his papers and he was only there for a limited, he was on a limited stay visa. His visa was about to run out. And so he would just say, okay, I'm going to go into an embassy and I'm no longer on French territory. Uh, you can't catch me here. Um, he would also try to get arrested on purpose to, you know, draw attention to himself. And he, he basically did what I would call performance art around the absurdity of borders and, and nationality. And um, he, you know, he kind of fell off the, the public map um, a few years into this, but he, he ended up living until quite an old age in Vermont. And uh, I met him, I met him in New York a few years before he died. And it, it's funny because I thought I'd lost the recording and then I got a new phone and it downloaded my old, um, like iCloud files and I found it and I was so excited oh, that I was amazing. able to use the interview. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he was definitely an idealist, but he was also very self-aware and I think he knew exactly what he was doing. Yeah. I, I, like, I actually really like your reading of him because it is so easy to kind of see like, Oh, or say that he didn't accomplish what he wanted. But then when you actually look at what he was doing, he was finding all these like weird rules of the interstate system and like bending them towards his purpose. Um, you know, he's like finding, finding those cracks, you know, like trying to get arrested so that um, he was put in jail rather than deported, for instance. Um, and, uh, and yeah, I, I think, I think that's totally right that this, this should be read as um, um, performance art um, uh, of like border regimes or something. And he actually, so, so another thing Gary Davis would do is he would send people, um, he would send people world passports and give them to, give them to people. He gave me one. I think one of the last things he did was send Edward Snowden a world passport because Ed Snowden was having some, some problems finding a place to live. Um, also camping out at, you know, the Moscow airport, which is a very Gary Davis thing to do. And, um, yeah, I think, um, did he achieve anything? Well, he was a celebrity in his time. He, he, he crashed the UN General Assembly. Um, he was friends with Camus. He, he did all kinds of stuff. We, we don't know about him now because I think that his vision of the world is a little outmoded. But at the time, 
Um, and I wasn't there, but based on what I've read at the time, there was a lot of enthusiasm behind these ideas because let's not forget World War II was so traumatic and it really made people think hard about, you know, water borders, what is citizenship, why are we doing yeah. this? And I think it's useful to revisit that because, you know, arguably we're in a moment like that now also with, with climate change and COVID and all of these kind of conventions are, are proving themselves maybe not so not so integral in the face of nature. And um, so I, I think a lot about that that period and the people who inhabited that world and the kinds of activism they were doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I mean, this goes um, beyond the scope of your book, but um, like that post-war moment, um, this sort of moment before the Cold War became the consensus and world system, um, uh, there was... Like an, uh, a lot of grassroots organizing towards one worldism, uh, and it had everything to do with this just catastrophic, you know, human tragedy that was the Second World War, um, and uh, you know, like thinking that this was a result of, you know, um, the, like the like everyone being contained by nation states that are constantly in competition with one another, um, but uh, yeah, but then that, like yeah, like that sort of moment passed, uh, unfortunately. Um, yeah, but that definitely what, what ended up happening is that even even some of some outspoken sort of world federalists resorted to the nation because they figured it was a more realistic way to give people rights. And, you know, um, this this federal federal world federalism kind of did not prevail. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, no, uh, um, I mean, also even just like a lot of, um, yeah, erstwhile nas- internationalists um, became Cold Warriors, um, uh, because they they saw the Soviet Union as this new um, existential threat. Um, I, I want to turn the page a little bit. Um, so I'm a historian or a historian in training, and um, I am in awe of the kind of research that you do, um, uh, because it really is so different from the research that I'm accustomed to doing. Um, and so I was just wondering if you could share a little bit about, uh, I mean, like how you um, uh, I mean, th- this is a really big and potentially unwieldy question, but like how you approach your research, like to me, you're, you're talking about these really big picture structures, but at the level of um, n- you know, narrative and biography. Yeah, I, I'm happy to share, but I tell you about it, but I don't think I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. Um, so I'm a journalist <laughs> by training and what we are supposed to do is find the stories and the people first. And unfortunately, that's just not how my brain works. And I, I go backwards and I have, you know, like I had a hunch that citizenship was kind of this messed up thing that maybe is not great <laughs> or maybe is not um, an accurate reflection of the way people actually live. And then I just kind of stewed in, in, in like misery and anger for a few years. And then I read that email and it kind of started coming together Um so, so that's the process, just, just deep, deep frustration and angst. And then maybe I'll read an article and the world <laughs> starts to make sense a little bit more. Um, yeah. In terms of the, the, the um, narrative and, and the, I guess, quote unquote, content, um, I mostly rely on interviews with people. And also, I, um, if I'm reporting in a place that I don't know well, I'll just try to find a couple of good local papers and um, read everything there is on the subject that I'm researching. Um, mm-hmm. 
I, I speak French, so the Comoros, that was possible for me. Um, but I don't speak Arabic. And so the UAE part of that story was tough. Um, I ended up hiring a research assistant to help me out a little bit with that stuff. Um, so that's mostly, and I use an app called Evernote. I don't know if you know it, but whenever I read an article or, you know, something online that seems, or an academic paper that seems relevant or something that I might need down the line, I'll just save it into Evernote. And then I can really quickly like look for keywords and find it again and kind of, I make a lot of timelines if I'm working on narrative. So that's, that's, that's the process. I, I, it's not very efficient. And like I said, I, I don't think I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. <laughs> I'm working on another well, book now and it's, it's kicking my ass. Oh yeah. I, yeah. I definitely want to hear a little bit about that book, but um, yeah. Like, so I think what makes your kind of work really challenging is the geographic scope um, and it's like not just like usually when we think about international geographies, you know, people are thinking like Europe, North America, maybe uh, like, you know, China, like it's, it's always these bigger countries, um, uh, uh, bigger powers uh, in the international system. But your research um, tends to pull you towards these, um, you know, these like far flung locales that. I mean, I had I I knew nothing about Comoros before reading this book. I knew um, nothing then, about like, Comoros before writing this book. I had never even heard of it. That's amazing. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and so uh, yeah, so that, that that is that was one of the sources of um, my question. Just yeah, I was, I was just curious about like how you actually approach these things that um, uh, could be very unwieldy. Yeah, it's unwieldy. I mean, I think the way to do it is to to find people who carry you through it and characters with interesting stories. And I was fortunate enough that there were plenty of them for this, uh, for the Cosmopolites. Um, so thank you to the people who exist in the world. Um, <laughs> but, but to your point about smaller countries that are maybe a little off the beaten path, I think that there's tremendous value in, in places that seem like the exception and, and really can tell you a bit more about the way the world works as a rule. Um, you know, there, there are so many places that we don't think about because they're far away or they're small or, or they don't seem important. They don't seem powerful, but they're part of the system too. And I think you said earlier that we live in a world where states are constantly in competition with each other. Well, that actually forces a lot of small countries to get really creative and, and come up with things to compete with, which is how, you know, you get passport selling. Um, and, lots of other little quirky industries. And I'm really fascinated by those. Yeah. I, I actually think that that's, um, that that's almost akin to what Gary Davis was doing, like finding these little rules and bending them. Um, uh, like, uh, I mean, I, I've, I've uh, encountered your work on um, like Luxembourg and, um, you know, it's desire to be the, the space law nation, but it's like, it's, you know, it, like it's, it's a small country that is, um, again, just like trying to find um, little niches for itself. I, I think this might be a good segue into your next book, which I think deals with this a bit more head on. Um, do you want to give uh, listeners um, uh, a tidbit about it? Yeah, um, I've been knee deep in it and I'm bagging my head against the wall. So it might not be as clear as it will be someday. But the next book is about, it's called tentatively called The Hidden Globe. And it's about 
Um, it's basically about extraterritoriality. It's about places where the rules don't completely apply um, in some shape or form. So that includes free ports, that includes, you know, embassies in the UN and, and other kind of diplomatic buildings, um, the oceans, outer space, uh, special economic zones, all of these places that are so integral to the way the world works in terms of trade, in terms of diplomacy, um, in terms of regulation, but that aren't really anywhere, or they're sort of semi places. And uh, I'm trying to, I'm still working on this, but I'm trying to understand how they contribute to the world and how they fit together. And uh, I think, I think it's going to be once I write it, it will be good. <laughs> I, I have the same inkling. Um, uh, no, it's, it's, it's a really exciting project. Uh, I mean, it, yeah, or like these are places that get overlooked um, in a lot of the academic literature, but then also um, uh, like just in the popular imaginary as well. Yeah, we think of the world as really being sort of neatly cut up into nation states, but there's all this weird stuff in between. And that doesn't necessarily challenge, it maybe appears to challenge the nation state, but in, in reality, it doesn't. It more or less enables nation states to keep doing what they're doing, for better or for worse. Yeah. 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 I mean, like a lot of these spaces are actually produced by the international system or interstate system. Completely. Well, um, Atusa, I want to thank you so much for speaking with me today. It was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And uh, we've been discussing Atusa Araxia Abrahamian's book, The Cosmopolites, The Coming of the Global Citizen. And you've been listening to New Books in History, a channel with the New Books Network.